Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. All right, welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin. Today, we have a mission thought leader and author named Dr. Larry Sharp on the program. Larry served in mission leadership in Brazil for over 20 years, followed by another 20 years as vice president of operations for Crossworld. During that time, he founded IBEC Ventures, a business as mission consulting group. You know, which is this group has taken him around the world to dozens of countries. In addition to teaching and writing, he's the author of the book titled The Greatest Missionary Generation. Recently, Larry has written a powerful new book titled Missions Disrupted. This book takes an inspired look at the state of Christian missions and where missions is heading, particularly from professional missionaries to missional professionals. I love the subtitle of this book. So, Larry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a privilege to be with you. So when I first came across uh, an interview you gave on another podcast, I was really intrigued. I immediately got a hold of Missions Disrupted and I dove into it. My first reaction, honestly, was, wow, I am so glad I don't have to write this book because someone already did it. That was a huge relief as soon as I read it. I was like, this is great. I'm sure you have a lot to offer. (laughs) (laughs) Super blessed. And, you know, the book is incredibly insightful, and I believe it's spot on. You know, you've really captured the moment we're in, this moment in spiritual history. And I'd love to dive into some discussion about your book, but first, help us get to know you. You know, our audience really loves to know where people are coming from, how they got there, where they're at now. So can you share with the audience about your journey, just your overall? And, you know, you've covered some ground in the kingdom of God, and I'm really curious to know how you got where you are now. Well, I I grew up in uh, Western Canada, and um, my parents came to faith later in life. So I was a child when I came to know uh, uh, the Lord Jesus as my Savior, and uh, Uh, As I matured and tried to understand uh, how I fit into the kingdom of God, um, I think I was uh, very much akin to that generation. When you went to your pastor or you went, I did go to Bible school in Canada before I went to university. Um, And and the typical response was, you know, if you want to really serve God to the maximum, you become a pastor or missionary or somebody at the top of the spiritual hierarchy. And uh, I, uh, I, I accepted that and did my best to uh, prepare for missionary service. Mm. Uh, so after, in university, I majored in, in business. I got a degree in business, and then I managed uh, fish plants in Alaska for a while. Okay. I began to realize that God had wired me for, for some management and operational guy. And um, so when I got into to the mission field, I ended up in education, and uh, I was headmaster of... Um, uh, the missionary kids school there in the lower Amazon of Brazil, and later a president of a Brazilian mission. And and uh, as such, was able to connect with those who are on the front line, so to speak, church planters and so on, and serve them the best I could with, with my gifts and 
Uh, I married right after university and uh, we had four kids in Brazil. And the mission I was with brought me back to the home office and I was uh, a VP of operations there. But while I was there, uh, in the the world, well, the world continues to change and it was changing rapidly at that point. And so many of our missionaries were found themselves in situations where they were not uh, desired by the government. Uh, they started to lose visas in multiple places around the world. And in one particular case, uh, the couple came back and and told me their story, which I, I won't spend time on here. But the the message was, uh, listen, we have to, to. If if I had if I had joined the mission differently as a business person, because this individual had been in business for four, uh, uh, for ten years, but laid laid that all aside to take on the theological component that he he was trained to do. Uh, and went overseas to a so-called closed country, um, he should have gone as a business person. And he realized that then. And uh, his wife and he prayed, and and God led them into uh, starting a business there, which actually became quite successful. But they they came back and said, well, if the bishop had only understood this, this milieu that we were in today and only understood what became known as business as mission, uh, I, I wouldn't have, uh, I would have saved a lot of time. And uh, so we began to think about that. And uh, I began uh, to uh, talk to business people all over the country and, and uh, realized that um, many were saying in a very upright spiritual way, you know, I'm, I'm kind of marginalized from the Great Commission because uh, I'm a business person. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I began to think, hey, there's something wrong with this picture. And uh, go back to study the theology of work, uh, work in the scriptures from generation, uh, G- Genesis to Revelation, and to uh, think through why we've got to this or how we've got to this place we are in the evangelical church today. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, th- that led me to, uh, uh, to various projects and also starting IBEC Ventures, which was meant to do two things. Uh, one was to help people like this guy I just mentioned, who uh, were there with a legitimate uh, wiring for business. They had uh, the commitment and passion to do so, and they were beginning to understand clearly how that merged with with faith and uh, their their spiritual commitment. And the two are one, and uh, and so I wanted to help them. The second thing is I wanted to get people out of the out of their seats in the church and understand mm. that there's, there's no difference in the eyes of God between a business person and a professional missionary who's uh, g- gone out to do uh, so-called theological work, church planting, whatever. Um, and I wanted them to say, understand that they could help the, these people with their skill, uh, not necessarily go abroad and live full-time, although we want more and more to do that, uh, they were able to uh, take their skill and help. And I got lots of stories of how they were able to do that and came back with just with a whole changed attitude as I was a- able to connect them with these projects. That, that's a little bit about my journey. Well, that's excellent. You know, what were some triggers or what were some moments that you realized something's really got to change? I mean, were there were there obvious things that you felt God was saying to you or revealing to you about this, this situation or, you know, cause you don't just like 
pull a book like you wrote out of thin air for no reason. Something had to be catalytic. I'm always curious as to what was the catalyst moment or what brought that on? You're like, I need to write a book on this. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I'm not sure I can point to one moment, hmm. but uh, a couple of situations. Well, one is I began to understand uh, or study and, and, and try to look for triggers in the scripture that were different than what I had learned in Bible college or what pe- people are typically learning in seminaries today. Okay. And one of them was in Acts 8, 1, where it says that there was so much persecution in Jerusalem that the Christians fled. and uh, But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So, so there they were saying there is a difference between the pastoral theological leadership uh, uh, component of Christianity and the individuals who are not the leaders. and But, but on the other hand, if you read carefully from chapter 8 to chapter 17, it's very clear that by the time you get to chapter 17, there were Christians in, in Cyprus, all up and down in the eastern Mediterranean, across the nation of Turkey today, over into northern Greece. And that's a thousand miles. And and. and it was the apostles started to visit them and write to them and encourage them uh, along the way. But the everyday believer was carrying the gospel to these places. And uh, that led me to the end conclusion that the 21st century should be more like the first century. Uh, so so that that was one thing. And the other thing was studying um, modern history it appeared to me that the tw- late 20th century was an aberration in Christian history. We had incredible advantages uh, after World War II, and mm. the church took advantage of those advantages. It was amazing. And uh, you know, there's uh, several of them that I listed in the in the book, The Greatest Missionary Generation, which, of course, is a takeoff from Tom Brokaw's term <laughs> and book. Uh, but I, I believe that same th- thing for missionaries, and uh, God, God really did a lot during the, that, that. That, but that that door, that window, which the church took advantage of, has basically come to an end. And uh, I, that's what I wanted to kick off with this book. And by by trying to to understand that, just simple things like two thirds of the world live in countries, seventy five countries. Uh, which do not give a religious workers visa any longer. Uh, so, you know, what are we supposed to think about that? And, and I don't think the church is thinking about that. They're, they're looking at the third where, that are open. That's fine. We need to have missionaries go there. But my focus is what do we do about the two-thirds? And uh, so th- there's a couple of triggers, yeah. of what you call um, – maybe defining moments. Uh, like I say, they weren't, it's more of a process, but those kind of things said, man, we have to think about this. We need to pray this through. We need to figure out what God's doing yeah. in the world and follow him in that. Yeah, that's really good. You know, one in the book, you know, I came across your, your uh, intro, even in the introduction, there's a section on this concept of Missio Dei. And I really think this is helpful. It's really holistic and it's really life-giving. It's a, it's a different lens in a way to look at mission and look at the scripture. You know, can you unpack this concept of Missio Dei a little bit for the audience? Because it really has an, 
it gives a different perspective and a different approach to missions, but I don't think that it's commonly discussed or known, though it seems obvious kind of once you dive into it. Could you share a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, and it's very important that people know that I'm not a theologian, and people have written on this subject with much more profoundly than I have, okay. uh, such as uh, R. Paul Stevens, uh, Chris Wright, people like that who, who really have, have clearly laid this out, although taken many chapters in their books to do so. But I tried to summarize it in, in, in this way, that it, it, it's, it's, it's God from the beginning has been on a mission. Uh, he has sent he sent, he sent uh, uh, Adam and Eve to start the human race. He sent Abraham. He sent Moses. He, he sent all these prophets, and he sent his own son. Hmm. So, so the, the, the sending of God, which is kind of a root word in the whole idea of mission, uh, is clear. And, and, but it's been his mission, and, and it's, it, it almost appears that in today's uh, missionary culture uh, and mission churches that are missionary, uh, that, that the, it's it's the church's responsibility to do this. It's, it's the church's mission. And and so missions, with an S, is different than mission in the sense right, yeah. that mission uh, is God's purpose to redeem the world uh, and, and bring the kingdom of God here and now, and that is holistic. Uh, which means the, the, the and I, I've gotten some criticism on this, that, and I'm not sure I want to defend it, uh, but the great commandment, is the great commandment to love our neighbors ourselves equal in God's eyes to the great commission? Uh, and um, as you un try to unpack that, uh, I come very close to saying, yes, they're, they're equal. For example, uh, things like the, king, the concept of the kingdom of God, if you look at it in the book of Matthew, uh, one half of the uh, instances are clearly referencing the here and now, whereas the other half are the not yet. Okay. But the last half of the 20th century, the amazing missionary generation of the, of the late 20th century focused on the not yet getting people saved right save save for what saved for eternity fair and well and good what about living in this life in the here and now and making the kingdom of god visible in a place like yemen i work with two two engineers in yemen who, who where it's 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 uh, a failed state uh the poverty is immense the injustices are unbelievable, and uh, it, 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 it's a place where Jesus isn't. And uh, to so, uh, Missio Day takes into consideration that thing. Now we have all kinds of reasons why we got to where we are today because of uh, the the whole uh, uh, social gospel in the twenties and thirties, and we, our rea our evangelical reaction to that. But 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 really, biblically, these two work together, and that's Monsieur Day. God's on a mission. We join him in that mission, and we care about the here and now people. One of the first projects we started in the early, or, or soon after I started IBEC Ventures was uh, in Bosnia after the war, where uh, there was 60% unemployment. Right. I mean, what, what do you do about that? What would Jesus do? And uh, and so that's different than missions, which is the work of the church. And uh, 
and so it, it's kind of foundationally foundationally um, fixated on the obedience to the Great Commission, which which is important. I don't want to deny that, but it, it's okay. We need to obey Jesus to tell people and and there and and get the world saved so they can go to heaven. And no, I don't. But that has to be linked with holy living after. Wait, one more comment. The, the, I think this has led to the bifurcation of the sacred and secular because, because we have outsourced and we had the ability to, in the 20th century to outsource the transmission of the gospel to the professional missionary who right. trains for that, is accepted by a mission agency to do that, and goes abroad with accountability for obeying the Great Commission. Uh, fair and well, fair and good. But th th there's various reasons why we need to rethink this whole missionary thing, which isn't, it's, it's an extra biblical word. Sure. So we, we've created it, but to think of it more theologically in terms of what God is up to, and it's not our missionary work, it's, uh, it's, it's God, and, and, and we, we, we serve him and worship him and love him with our whole being, not just our spirit. And yeah. that whole being is our lives and uh, the way we live and uh, and uh, how we care for people. That's really good. You know, that really <laughs> it strikes me as uh, a form or a working definition almost of what you're trying to do when we talk about nation discipling. Because a lot of times uh, people don't know what that means. Generally, they understand church planting because they've kind of seen that. They know what it church so to speak and at least in their cultural context is supposed to look like in their mind but when it comes to nation discipling i think that's the arena that this really uh, affects this missio day discussion because it is what do you do with people after they become christians so they're planted in a church now what and unfortunately right. much of traditional mission thinking in my experience has not thought to address the now what part now what do we do after you've successfully planted a church or a church planning movement or whatever it may be and in a way it's left like an abdication where we haven't taken responsibility to disciple people uh, to carry the carry out or connect with the mission of God, so to speak. Would you see this as a relevant discussion to the nation discipling? context oh yeah absolutely um you know my experience uh, with church planters is uh, more than 25 years old now um and uh, but the, the whole nation discipleship is a concept that's been being developed and and i think it's it's a perfectly good example of this because uh, but back in the day when i was supervising church planters in brazil we used to talk about uh, is it believers before the, uh, the building, or is it the building before the believer? Mm. And, and wrapped up into that whole little quip was, um, do you make disciples and they then plant their own church out of their growing discipleship, or you get all these people to come to church for when a lot of uh, methods are really questionable, but you get them there and they're in this church and then you try to disciple them afterwards. To me, I, I believe that uh, we should work on discipling first. And I, I remember one of the church planters that I uh, went to visit in those years and, and he was he was up on a roof helping somebody uh, fix their roof. You know, simple building in Brazil. I, I said, well, what are you doing here? 
you, you should be out preaching the gospel. And, and he said, look, I want to live 24-7 with some people. I, I want to be with them in their workplace. I want to uh, them to see how I, I react when I hit my my finger with a, hit my nail on my finger with the hammer. I want them to see how I eat lunch. I want them to see life on life. And, yeah. and that's discipling people into the kingdom and into the church. And, and he built several churches in Brazil that way from the bottom up. And, and I think that uh, that that way we disciple nations because people to to live and 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 if we were living and then the whole nation begins to see that uh, they're going to be different than, than another nation. The best example of that in history probably it was the Moravians um, worked from the bottom up in Suriname. And there you had the, the nation really, the nation was living Christianly for a long time. Yeah. And there was, the, the, the Christians were about over 50% of the, of the whole country. So, you know, I, I don't understand totally the nation, uh, discipling the nation as it's currently used, but it certainly has to do with the whole man. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people would, you know, hear this discussion or something and maybe they're in a uh, traditional career position, they're a believer, they care about the kingdom of God, they feel a compelling, you know, weight or burden about the condition of the world. And they look around, they're like, what do I do? I mean, I hear, you know, he's like, I, I hear this premise that, you know, we're, there's a need for, an, uh, you call it a modus operandi shift here, I like the term of, you know, professional missionaries to missional professionals. Say a guy can or a lady consider themselves a missional professional at heart. Uh, how do they move from that, from that conviction towards actually operationalizing this in their life? Like, what do, what would you tell somebody to do to move forward? I would say in, in that case, um, I would study the scriptures for myself uh, to and maybe read a book or two to kind of come up with some of those references and then. Uh, really have a solid theological foundation as a per just as for me personally, uh, and, and and then I, I, the next thing I would do is to be intentional about how I want to live in the business world. And I'm, we're not necessarily talking about somebody who owns a business. Okay, uh, maybe maybe somebody who's mid level management, maybe selling shoes in in pennies or something. Uh, what what is life? to be like, and I would write that down. Okay. Um, and when we, in, in our group, um, coach startups, we, we use the, uh, the, the lean startup model, and then that merges into a business plan, but then we also ask them to write a missional plan. And then as, as we coach them and talk about that, uh, we then merge the business plan with the missional plan. Uh, no, for, for, just as an example of that, we had a business in um, Indonesia that uh, they were building uh, catamarans, and the, the owner was a former uh, missionary, full-time missionary, uh, and uh, the, 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 the number of, of workers was about 35, if I remember right, and they were all uh, Muslim and Hindu. There was no Christian believers. And uh, so when we said to him, Rob, how are you going to uh, merge your, your, your missional life into this? 
Now, he, he had all kinds of ways that he was going to be uh, characterized as a believer. In other words, he's going to be faithful. He's going to be on time. He was going to uh, be, work with integrity. He's going to pay his taxes. He was going to do, do excellent work. Those kinds of things. Sure. But then uh, when we when we queried him further, uh, I, I said we, we said how how will you uh, make it easier for you to get into a conversation? That, that may take months, but whatever. So, anyways, what he did was to uh, write a proverb for, from our book of proverbs on the door of the office when they so that when they came to work they would see it. And there'd be no reference there, hmm. and so they would see that. And be talking about it eventually, and pretty soon in the beginning, uh, they they said, "Well, where does this good proverb come from?" And he put one a week, and then the second week, another one, and so on. And these all were good things. And so they finally, one of them finally went and asked me. He said, "Well, that comes from my holy book." Okay. And so they said, "Oh, is your holy book different than our holy book?" Yeah, yeah, it is different. And uh, they said, well, uh, we didn't know your holy book had so many good things in it. And so one thing led to another. And they wanted to know more about this holy book. And so he uh, said, well, if you really want to know after work on Friday, we will uh, we will um, talk about this. So, well, they all came, all of them. Uh, and now the, it gradually dwindled off so that there was fewer. But uh, they had a, a, a Bible study that lasted months from that. And I'll never forget, wow. about two years later, I was, um, I got this email saying that, uh, do you remember so-and-so? And of course, we, we I didn't, but he said, uh, this person had come to faith, and we're being discipled, and uh, is getting extreme opposition from his family. Interesting. So, that, that was just one example of ways that, uh, that you could be intentional. I, I would write those down, yeah. and um, maybe the third idea would be to... Uh, to get together with other people, even if it's in a different church or whatever, and just like like a C twelve group or some type of, even if it's on, a, on not affiliated with anything, just a couple of good people and talk about this. So that's and I think that encourages we, we encourage one another that way uh, to talking how how you're trying to live out your faith in the workplace. Yeah, it's good advice, and I I like also in the book how you suggest that the term missionary as a noun may have run its course, so to speak, or may not be as relevant in the future going forward. And I know a lot of these, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, missional professionals, oftentimes are seeking some verbiage, some language to put around what they're feeling or what they're trying to do. Have you come up with any alternative verbiage or terminology that you would recommend as people kind of move into this new, new season in spiritual history with mission? Yeah, uh, in, in Appendix A in the book, I, I talk about the change of terminology, and it, it's it's somewhat related to overseas, but it, it applies to people in this country as well. Uh, now, f for example, if you use the word, I'm a Christian, and you say that to five people without any kind of feedback, you can abs be absolutely assured that everybody's going to think something different. So, so, so th there's such a wide understanding of what that word means. Now, it doesn't completely solve it to say I'm a follower of Jesus, right. but it starts it starts to uh, solve that problem. And certainly, we would overseas we would say that in in some of these countries that are are, are op op opposition to the to to Christianity, why use the word? 
Uh, and, and so uh, pr words like conversion, w w we can use different words for that. We can talk about uh, becoming a follower of Jesus. Uh, uh, evangelism, we don't want to use that word. And uh, uh, words like uh, church planting, uh, even church, we could call it to say community of faith. And uh, so, so, hmm. so and for, for people who still want to use the word missions, which I don't use the word missionary or missions anymore, uh, we can talk about blessing the nations or global engagement or involved with God and his purposes uh, internationally, working internationally. We need to use, take away any word or change any word that distracts from the message. Sure. And it's not like we're, we're, uh, losing our faith or anything just because we changed <laughs> the terminology. But uh, I think that so many of our Christian words uh, are pejorative and uh, we need to, we need to change them to, to something else, but, yeah. but not deny no, like, you know, it's not like we're trying to be fake something. We'll never deny that we're followers of Jesus and that we care about people. And uh, but we need to take away those terms. I mean, I you know the the, the term uh, crusade. Yeah. I mean, almost every you know my there's a college in in uh, near Chicago called Wheaton College, and their sports team was the Crusaders. Well, we, we they realized they, that that was that was uh, that was offending people. That was uh, a, a a word that needed to be changed because people wonder, oh, is that something to do with the Crusades or right and so on? So. You know, they, they, they came up with else. Yeah, it seems like it's a good opportunity, you know, as the landscape, so to speak, is changing in the mission world. It seems, and it's involving even more and more uh, innovators and entrepreneurs and marketplace folks uh, that are really wired for what I call advancing the kingdom among the people, places and spaces that God's given them. They, it seems like it's a time for innovation, even around language and strategies and tactics and just how you present and demonstrate the gospel in your given space, in what God's given you. Uh, I think there's some freedom in that right now. Like it's not like you're locked into some existing structure or verbiage that you have to comply with. It feels like a, a time to innovate with God. Yeah, somebody uh, has. Um, it was a Dutch author. Guys, I'm not sure. I can't remember her name now. But she, she said, "What's happening in missiology is a reformation, somewhat akin." to the Reformation of the uh, 1500s with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these people. They needed, there needed to be a Reformation in theology and understanding mm. of grace and understanding of, uh, of uh, salvation by faith and that, that all those theological things. Missiologically, we're in an age now where we need to understand how we live and how we uh, bring people to faith in Christ, and that that's an, that's innovative. That's a, it's a reformation. Uh, I don't think too many people are using the word reformation, but I wanted to use the word innovation, taking the business theory of, of disruptive innovation, and apply it to what we we're just now starting to understand in the terms of mission. Uh, talk a little bit more about that, that disruptive innovation theory concept and how you've uh, connected that to the discussion around the future of missions. I think that's helpful for people in the marketplace. That's a, that resonates. Yeah. Uh, disruptive innovation was a term that was coined by Clayton Christensen at Harvard. And um, it, it, what it basically says that innovation 
uh, begins with a simple application at the bottom of the market. Now, he, he, he was a business guy and a business professor, and so this is all in terms of business. Sure. He, he widened it away from business uh, into things like education, medicine, and so on. And, and so what they're saying is if you look at the normal curve, and the majority of the people are in the middle, uh, two-thirds are in the, in the, at the peak of the normal curve, and each side of it, you say, oh, I'm going to market to them. Well, that, he said, that's not the way change happens, and that's not the way the markets go. You market it to early adopters, and they pick it up, and, and you begin to change the product from then until it's excellent. And uh, pretty soon, those those who are in the majority will see and understand. There's lots of examples of that from um, oh, the early days of uh, the, the transistor radio, for example. I'll never forget you know, I was a I was um, <clears throat> a teenager, and I wanted my own transistor radio. And, and Dad said, "Well, what's wrong with the big RCA cabinet we have in the living room? We can hear the hockey games there, and we can hear the news, and even music on there. And what what do you need a transistor radio for?" And and of course, <clears throat> the young the young people want it because we could go uh, away from home. We could watch listen to Elvis. Presley, without people knowing it, and we could take it on our to the beach, right. you know. And, and so, but pretty soon, guess what? D Dad got a transistor radio he could listen to while he's doing his gardening. And pretty soon, everybody wanted a transistor radio. And and the same thing has taken place with phones. I mean, I'll never forget why when I had a BlackBerry, and and I thought, why do people want an iPhone? You know, well, guess what? It's an iPhone in my pocket right now. And so all of this worked at the bottom of the market. And uh, computers, for example, when I took computers in the 60s, the computer was a big, big room down the hall, very mysterious. And we carried data, uh, data, digital card, physical cards back and forth with our data. Well, I mean, and, and, no, and everybody said there's, there's no commercial need for a or private need, personal need for a computer. Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> they started at the bottom of the market and, and uh, even Bezos I'm, I live here in Seattle where you know people kind of bow down before Jeff Bezos <laughs> uh, and thousands <laughs> of jobs here uh, you know he, he, he was just wanted to market books in his garage and, and now he's changed everything delivery systems networking supply chain everything is different uh, but he worked he just started with, a, with with books and so if you apply this to missions um the, the, the majority are linked into uh, the, the, those who love God and really care about the Great Commission. The, that's the majority of, of the missiological thinking, and they're not, they don't seem too interested in changing. And I've had pastors, when I came to do a weekend seminar on Saturday in the church, and, and asked the missions pastor where the pastor was, why he, was he going to attend? Oh, no, he, he, he believes this is just a passing fad. <laughs> And I've had that happen yeah. lots of times. But those who are going to get it and push it up market, I believe, are the business people themselves. The best way to bring that change about is to take them with us. And I've taken small or people who are in small businesses. I've taken CEOs from Fortune 500 companies abroad. And every case, they, they come away saying, wow, I didn't know I could be involved. You know, Billy Graham said uh, near his, his deathbed when he was pe people were talking about this, and he said, "Oh, the great work of God in the 21st century 
will be through everyday believer living out his faith, his or her faith in the marketplace. And I think he's spot on. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that quote and I totally resonate with that, what you're saying. You know, I really do see this as a, a season of like a sea change and a real reformation regarding missiology. And it's an interesting season we're in, and it really matters. It has a lot of ramifications, the way we respond to this, the way believers invest in the season we're in, the way they react and respond, the way they position their companies, their initiatives towards this Missio Day, really laying hold of what God is doing and seeing that. And I'm so encouraged by what I've seen, and I'm discouraged sometimes by what I see, the opportunities that people don't take. And I... And I see real consequences in nations. I mean, we see we see Christianized nations that are not uh, living up to the calling of God or the ways of God. And it's just a shame because they have such a high calling as an individual. We've talked here about the uh, the theology of yeah. Mr. Day and also the theory of, of disruptive innovation, which is a business theory. <clears throat> but the book is, the majority of the book is 27 stories of people who uh, I'm, who have met four criteria. Okay. And uh, I, I wanted to share that to to address that because of the naysayers who mm. think, well, you know, this is a passing fad. These businesses are all post-revenue. The criteria were that um, they they were they were independent of foreign money. They were they were profitable. They're pay, paying the their employees and um, there there was no need for foreign money. Secondly, they were creating jobs, and okay. we see that as a great commandment of Jesus. Uh, thirdly, they were making disciples. Okay, because it was in the in the marketplace, not on Sunday after church, uh, in the marketplace. And thirdly, they were careful with God's creation. I wanted people to re read those stories and see that, uh, that it was possible to change a community through a, a godly kingdom business. And yeah. so that, that that to me was the heart of it, so that people would say, "Well, you know, that's that's how they did it in the first century. If they were persecuted in Jerusalem and ended up in Cyprus with a couple of other Christians, guess what? They lived Christianly and they used their same skill that God had given them. If they were a carpenter, they're a bricklayer, if they were a shepherd." You know, whatever it was, they did it there. They had to feed their families. And so uh, it wasn't, there was no First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. There was no um, revenue from anywhere. Yeah. There, there was no internet. There wasn't even a New Testament. Yeah. Until until they started to get letters from Paul and Peter and so on. So, so I, I, that, that's, that was, that's the major part of the book. And I, I'm just thankful for the privilege of being able to meet meet these guys and gals and uh, visit them. Yeah, and, and see what God is doing. You know, as you share on that and highlight, you know, that being kind of a central takeaway from the book. Immediately, my mind goes to what you would consider what you mentioned as like potential naysayers, but. I don't think, you know, I don't think some people do it on purpose, but there's a lot of pastors, for instance, I've talked with that have a hard time seeing how this works or validating it. And for various cultural reasons or church construct reasons. And I, I know that's not their heart, but they have a hard time wrapping their mind around it just because of where they come from in their history. What would you say to a pastor who's hearing this and they're wondering, well, what's my role or how do I support people doing 
this, these missional professional endeavors, because in a lot of ways, what I've seen is they feel like it's less controllable. It's less uh, connected, perhaps, than the traditional mission model is to the local church or ascending church. And you've got people out in the marketplace that are just going for it and seeing a lot of results and fruit. And the local pastors are wondering, what's my role in this equation now? What would you share to those pastors? Well, uh, I think that their um, their role is in Ephesians four twelve. I think. Uh, thanks for asking about this, but it, it says in four chapter four of Ephesians that um, it lists pastors and teachers are to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, um, so, so there is a tremendous need. For knowledgeable, godly, mission-structured or, or oriented pastors and church leaders, and but their job is to prepare the congregation to go out on Monday morning and live differently. I, I mean, I don't like personally. I don't like to people who say who meet somebody that maybe have some personal need or something, and they say, "Well, you need to come to church." Hmm. Well, yeah, they do. But they need to see that person living Christianly right on the job. And, and, and it's the pastors who prepare that. And, and so I would say to, to a couple of things to that pastor, I would say, okay, with that verse in mind, you need to visit your congregation on the job. Yeah. And every, jo- every job has a way to do that. And, uh, and so you need to go there. You need to go there at the lunch hour and meet some guys. And, uh, and um, so that's one way. Another thing is to, in your church, um, when uh, people say have a ch- transition in their life, like graduate from college, for example, or uh, leave your church and go on to another city, and let's say they got a job there, uh, you need to bring them up to the front, not just the mission team that goes out for for ten days and comes back and you have them on the pulpit and you think pray for them and you think about them great don't, don't change that but do it do that with everyone who's going into the marketplace and dedicate them to yeah. making a difference in those places and 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 bring them to the forefront pray for them uh, consider them missional yeah wherever they going and, and if you if you took uh, a college graduates say, say going into teach public school system, and um, and you brought them up and said, look, uh, th- this young lady is going into teaching elementary school in Seattle Public Schools, and she's in this particular school, and she wants to live like Jesus while she's there. And that's going to be a difficult thing, at least here in the Northwest it would be. And and we're going to pray her through, and we're going to encourage her, and we're going to we're going to ask her how it's going, and we're going to you know, if every pastor did that, th- th- then that would change him or. Um, and would also just encourage people to, to to be that effective Christian witness in life in the marketplace. Yeah, it seems like what you're saying is like you're actively reconnecting these folks that don't normally get sent out or commissioned to that concept of God sending to the Missio Dei, to that concept exactly. of them being sent as well, but also them finding their commission and their role in the Missio Dei, in the mission that God is doing you're helping launch them into their part that they play in that. Would that be a fair way to say it? That'd be better. Be better said than I said it. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I, I love it. That is life-giving. That's the uh, 
That's that's powerful. Love it. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Larry, for your time today, and thank you for investing in this audience. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It's been encouraging to talk to you and to see uh, a similar thinker, a like thinker, and a thought leader as well. And uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.